You asked that I could ask questions. What is on your arm? Oh, this is <laughs> love that you asked that. This is a, the tattoo of my mother's name. Oh, yeah, the, that's so my sweet. arm. She she died. Parthenia. Parthenia, yeah. You should like put like red roses or something. <laughs> she would love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Where was she born? She was born in McKeesport, the same town that I was born oh, in. When? How? Oh, she was born in 1953. She was born. And separate but equal was the law. That's right. I'm Carvel Wallace, and this is Closer Than They Appear. How do you even describe Eva Patterson? I'm Eva Jefferson Patterson. I am a civil rights lawyer. I'm in a band. I'm taking singing lessons, and I like to get in people's business. <laughs> She's the kind of person who knows instantly that in order to understand your mother, you have to understand the time and place where she came from, and that she needs to understand that in order to understand you. And right now, that's the kind of person I need to talk to. Someone who's got a lifetime's worth of wisdom and experience finding ways to go forward politically and personally. She's a lawyer who spent nearly two decades with the ACLU and founded the Equal Justice Society to fight for fair representation in the justice system. She's testified before Congress. And in 1971, when she was just 20 years old, she sat on stage at Northwestern University and debated civil rights with then-Vice President Spiro Agnew. There's an honest difference of agreement on issues, but, but when you make people afraid of each other, you, you isolate people. And maybe this is your goal, but I think this, is a, this could only have a disastrous effect on the country. There's that great poem, And Still I Rise, My Ajalu, I'm the hope and dream of the slave. I feel that. Um, I'm many things. And the dream of the slave. And so I rise. I rise. I rise. I'm looking. Today I'm looking. I'm looking for answers. Because I am, to be completely honest, afraid and unsure. I don't understand what's happening in our country. I don't understand how bad it is or why it's so bad. I don't know what it all means or what we should do about it, what I should do about it. And then if that weren't enough, I'm having this personal experience where I'm just a few days away from seeing my Aunt B face to face, the person who raised me from ages 8 to 13 and whom I haven't seen in almost 20 years. Am I safe? Am I loved? Do I belong anywhere? Do I have value? These are the kind of questions I didn't used to even have room for. I had heartache and depression, homelessness and addiction, drama and tragedy and racism. Those things took up all the room that I had. But in many ways, the drama in my life has stopped. I'm healthy. I'm happy now. I'm a grown-up. I have a family. I'm successful at my job. And so these questions that I shoved down for all these years are now finding their way back to me. When so many of us are wondering if we're safe, if we're loved, if we belong anywhere, if we have value. I need help. And I'm looking. And something inside me believes or thinks or hopes that Eva Patterson may have answers. 
This is a picture of my heroine and hero, Constance Baker Motley and Thurgood Marshall. In Eva's office, we're surrounded by art and by history. Uh, they sued people and desegregated the South. And just look at how they look. They just look so vital and, and alive. Her story is a story of progress. It's a story of alliances, of views changed. It's a story of hope. When I entered Northwestern, I supported the war in Vietnam. My father had just come back. And this is what I call the seed of doubt theory. There were teach-ins at Northwestern where I heard people talking about the war, talking about feminism, talking about black studies. And my mind was slowly changed over time. So if my mind can be changed, the minds of other people can be changed. I, I believe that to my heart. If I didn't, there'd still be slavery, women wouldn't be able to vote, all kinds of things would not have changed in our society. It's a very arduous struggle because the people on the other side generally have more money, they're more evil, they seem to be more tenacious, but it's it's kind of this constant cosmic struggle, if you will. Um, but I believe you can change people's hearts and minds. I've seen it. My own heart and mind was changed about many things, many things. This may be the first time in this whole podcast that I've heard someone sharing a message of hope and my mind didn't immediately start looking for loopholes. But I believe that Eva Patterson has my best interests at heart. It's the other thing that I think about, and this is what I maybe hope you can help me understand, is that it, from my point of view, I was born in 1974. And so I came it feels everyone in my generation, we feel like we came after something. It was like, it feels to us like we got here and everyone was like, man, we just, you should have been there yesterday. We had this incredible thing, which was the 60s. And for us, I think a lot of us felt like we looked, we grew up in the 80s and maybe this is just the ungrateful youth, but we looked around and thought, well, this, what is this? What is, I mean, everyone just is interested in money and drugs and everything is just for sale all the time and it's all commercials and it's all capitalism and like did we make any progress at all the, the thing that um people forget when they think about the glory days of the 60s is in 63 four little black girls were blown up in a church mm. young men were coming home in body bags and particularly poor black and brown people. That's why we were out on the streets with the anti-war movement. A lot of it was principled, but a lot of it was young men did not want to go to Vietnam and die. Four students were shot dead on a campus in Kent State. Two were shot dead in Jackson State. So people people tend to um, look at that era with a lot of mythology around it, but there was an extraordinary amount of pain going on. So I don't know. I, I'm an optimist, and I feel like your generation, to some degree, faced less oppression, mm -hmm. which is good. Mm -hmm. But I think, and this may sound really corny, but I think love is more powerful than any of this stuff. It's it's intangible. And I think that's where we come from. And we're trying to create a world that really does have love, because if we all loved each other, we couldn't kill each other. We couldn't oppress each other. We couldn't call people nigger. We couldn't have Puerto Ricans just dying because we're not um, 
thinking that they're they're real humans. So if we really move from a deep place of love, if we really do, it's really transformative. And that's the, I mean, I once said, you know, you have your mother's name on your arm. If I had a tattoo, it would say born to sue. And so I kind of have a, a different approach. And if you're messing with folks, I'm going to sue you and I'm going to enjoy that. Um, so I'm not a pacifist, but, and this is something I work on. I think love will win ultimately. I think a lot of people are afraid of that. They're afraid to be loving <laughs> when they are in danger. Actually, you said this in this in the Agnew debate. You said the main problem, and this actually was the big applause line, was that you said the the thing that was most troubling is that their language was working to make Americans afraid of one another. And of their children. And of their children. And that is currently the case. Mm-hmm. We we are afraid of one another. Absolutely. And we hate each other. And the great yeah, and the greatest well, but I, I also tend to think that hate and anger are guard dogs to fear. And so maybe if we dig a few layers down, now what's really what what I what I really hate is what I think might hurt me. Mm-hmm. So we're in more fear of each other now than I it seems to me that that we've been in my lifetime, that I can remember. And it's really hard for people to love when they are in fear. But when we talk about how to motivate people collectively, does a message of collective love carry the same power in 2017 as it did in 1956, 57? Let me give you a concrete example. Um, we <clears throat> were part of a coalition of people that sued the Kern High School District. Just an aside, this is a school district in Bakersfield, California, where black and Latino kids were significantly more likely to be suspended or expelled than white kids. So we were in pitch battle for three years. We finally settled the case. We had a big community meeting where we talked about what was going to happen going forward. So in that circumstance where we had been at war and we felt the district was harming our children, we said, okay, the war is over. Let us deal with each other with respect. And from my perspective, trying to beam love to them. But in all of my encounters with the other side, I tried to beam love while I was saying, you're harming our children. So standing really firmly for right and saying, this is not right. This is racist straight up mm. but i but you're going to feel mm. that i'm not demonizing you that i think you can do the right thing so you're it's a combination of what is it the um iron fist and the velvet glove the more i think about this idea the more miraculous it becomes to me to stand firmly fearlessly uncompromisingly against evil without demonizing the evildoer. It's deceptively complex. There are so many ways to do this wrong and really only one way to do this right. So how do you get there? I think it's important for young people like you're doing with me, just sit down and talk. I've seen a lot of stuff um, and I'm still fighting. I'm still hopeful. Um, I think cultivating a spiritual side, not necessarily religious, but there are things higher than you. I pray. 
breathing, meditation. Um, there are all kinds of things you can do to feel better. When you're not when you're not thinking about this stuff, when you're not thinking about litigation and suing for equal rights and equal protection under the law, what do you think about? I think about being in love again. I miss being in love and having a boyfriend, so I'm working on that. I'm uh, taking singing lessons because I'm in two bands, and I'm going to Michigan in two weeks to sing in Grand Rapids. I'm very bougie, and I just got a really bougie hotel to stay in when I'm there, so that makes me happy. I would like to read. I like to sit in the sun. Yeah. I guess this is the final question, the big one. Um, do you think this country all under one collective label, do you think we can go forward together? Yes, I do. But part of the, and part of the problem is both political parties trade on demonizing the other side. It's not just the Republicans. The Democrats do it as well. And so when we look at the opposition as evil, that's just not going to work. And I don't, this is something I think about a lot. I think about, well, what of my own political agenda will I have to give up in order to come to a cohesive whole as a country? Because I know the other side needs to yield. Am I willing to yield on some things? Is there a, a common denominator that holds us together as a people? And who's the person to do that? I know I said it was the last question, but did. I did. Bait and switch. Bait and switch. Well, this isn't really a question, but a comment. It just makes me think of something. Which My last question for Eva wasn't political. It was personal. After talking with her so long about fear and love, I wanted to tell her about the fear that I was about to face. My Aunt B and I, we were always kind of an odd couple. Here's this salty, no-nonsense white lawyer from a Connecticut dairy farm, and then this delicate and somewhat obsessive black kid who had just survived a year of hunger and homelessness and abuse. I mean, it would have made a great sitcom if it were at all funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of her. She was tough. Exacting is a word that comes to mind. But for years... She was the only one taking care of me, feeding me, buying me the clothes that I was constantly growing out of, making sure I had lunch money and backpacks and styrofoam boards and rubber balls for my various science fair projects. I could always tell that she loved me, but I couldn't always tell if she liked me. And I haven't talked to the woman. I talked to her on the phone, the woman who raised me twice in the last 20 years. What? That's your mom. Well, she's like my mom. <laughs> I guess she, she raised is. raised you? Right? <laughs> she raised you? But that, this is awful person. I bet she feels hurt. Wouldn't you think? I mean, I think we both feel hurt because she hasn't called me either. <laughs> Really? What yeah. do you think that's about? The two of you? Why is there a wall? But you're breaking it down, right? We're breaking it down. I think both of us are the kind of people who tend to just kind of put the past behind us and move on. And 
part of that has to do with not acknowledging emotions or connections because you're always just focused on working and keeping going. But now you have the space to not do that. And you got to take the wall down around your heart. She was she was your mom. You had two moms. You're going to it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. I feel um I believe you're right and I also right. feel terrified. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I know you're right. And I also feel, honestly, I feel terrified of it. What, what, what's the worst thing you think that could happen? And does she know you have this terror? Oh, you need to tell her. And say, I'm really, I'm, this, this bossy woman I interviewed said that I need to like, <laughs> no, really, just to, to be vulnerable. Oh, you have so much to gain. Because most people I know who were tough like that, there's a, a softness under them. They're protecting themselves. Mm. What's the worst you think that could happen? I mean, it's so silly because I know nothing. She's not going to, like, reject me. I mean, I think maybe this sounds weird, but maybe one of the things I'm afraid of is just the letting go. I mean, just the letting go of. You're probably going to cry. You're going to sob. Yeah, you I don't, go, I don't necessarily want to do that either. I mean. <laughs> It's healing. It's healing. It's healing. You need to, you need to cry now. I know. I'm always on the verge. I'm always on the verge of tears. <laughs> you need to, and she does too. You need to let it go. Ugh. Oh, it's going to be so wonderful. <laughs> it is. It's gonna. It's you need. It's gonna be cleansing. Oh my God! I'm excited. I'm pulling into the driveway now. <laughs> Wish me luck. I'm uh, probably going to need it. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I know it did not take the two minutes. How are you doing? I'm good. It's so good. My Aunt B didn't want me to record this first meeting. She's a private person, is what she told me. So I turned off the tape recorder after this driveway greeting, and instead we sat in her house for hours while she told me everything that I didn't know about my childhood and about hers. She told me harrowing stories of survival, stories about her past, my mother's past, about my own past, she told me how bad things in our house had really gotten, how hard a time it was for her. She helped me understand where I came from, where she came from. After we talked on that first day, we went out to mediocre pizza at a local Italian place. And for the first time in my life, I bought her dinner. At the end of our conversation, she agreed to let me come back with the recorder to talk some more. Hi, I'm B. Longo, and um, I'm Carvel Zahn. Very honored to be a Zahn, and I uh, spent some rough years with him, but we both survived. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to see him again. <laughs> it is two days after our first meeting. Her home is warm, clean, and full of art and small sculptures. There are books everywhere. She's currently reading Arundhati Roy's latest, 
She told me that Roy's first book, The God of Small Things, is her one of her favorites of all time. It's one of my favorites of all time. At one point, we had to stop the interview to turn off some music she had playing in the background. Probably Sarah Vaughn. <laughs> I love Sarah Vaughn too. Although lately I've been more in an Ella Fitzgerald. I like uh, Ella too, but yeah. I like Sarah, Sarah Vaughn is, is perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she offers us juice and cookies that she bought from the Italian bakery to mark the occasion. When we sit down, I remember that at Christmas, when I was a kid, she used to make these very same cookies. Shortbread with a dollop of chocolate in the middle. She called them thumbprint cookies. And then I had another memory. It came to me right as I opened the box of pastries. Somewhere around 2011, I went a year without eating sugar. After a while, it wasn't even that hard. I lost like 30 pounds. But then, randomly and suddenly, I sat down one day and just ate an entire box of cookies. And they were shortbread cookies with a dollop of chocolate in the middle. That was like a year after my marriage ended. I was feeling adrift and unsure of myself or my place in the world. I was feeling rejected. I was feeling alone. So maybe I needed a family. Maybe I actually needed the warmth of a home at Christmas time with cookies in the oven and the people you love buzzing around the kitchen. And maybe that container of cookies in my apartment was like the closest thing I could get to that. It starts to occur to me that this woman's influence in my life is layers deeper than I've really understood. There are some very specific ways in which she helped make me. So I wanted to know who or what made her. You've always tried to help people, always. Like, like you've like you've worked with kids. You take in stray cats. You, volu- <laughs> you volunteer with kids at foster homes. You took me in. So I guess I wonder where that comes from for you. Like, how? Why are you like this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where it came from. Maybe because I was really sad as a child. And um, B was born on a Connecticut farm. She grew up with a host of brothers and sisters and experienced abuse from an early age. And um, there were times I thought about running away from home, but I couldn't leave my little sister. But she left home for good as soon as she could. She moved to McKeesport sometime around 1970 and began to work with local organizers to address inequalities in schools and employment. She would dedicate the rest of her career to fighting injustice. And one of the first activists she met was my Aunt Beverly, who then introduced her to her younger brother, Carvel, my uncle. Ten years later, B and Carvel were married. And two years after that, I moved in. And I did really love children. And um, that's why when you came with us, I was all excited, but there was so much going on. It's like my one opportunity to be a mother. <laughs> and, and I think I felt short in many ways because of things that were going on. You know, I was thinking about how you said that yesterday, and um, I don't know how else to get this across to you. I guess I just want to say that um, 
I know you feel like you felt fell short, but you had a lot going on, and you did the best you could. Well, I don't know that I did the best I could looking back, <laughs> but but in hindsight, it always looks like it will be easier. She did the best she could. My mom did the best she could. I did the best I could. It wasn't good enough. It just was enough. You know, it had to be because that's all there was. I once heard someone say that serenity means giving up all hope of a better past. I've been thinking about that one for years. I still don't know everything it means, but I know it's true. Maybe it just means seeing the past for what it is. Not what you thought it was, not what you wish it was, not what you tell other people it was, just what it was. Would you be willing to look through some yeah, of the sure, things? Because sure. um, I, I think I remember most of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I haven't looked at this. I have in my hands this scrapbook that she sent me when I was in college, more than 20 years ago. Um, so this is my birth certificate. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the first picture of me ever. Yeah. Just remember, we thought you were one of the cutest babies that ever was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in this picture, I'm pretty cute, I gotta yeah, say. Back then, I had sent her this letter about not knowing how to process our time together. And I waited months for a reply, but I got none. Then, one day, out of nowhere, I suddenly get this package in the mail. I open it up, and it's a scrapbook. She had made this scrapbook of every picture she had of me. There was no note. By that time, I'd lived at close to 40 different addresses in four different major metropolitan areas. I'd been to 11 different schools. I didn't have anything from my childhood. No books, no photos, no stuffed animals. I didn't think I needed them. And this was... Uh, You asked me earlier today to think about some of the really good memories. Well, Christmas was always a good memory. Mm -hmm. Somebody always came in. Your Mm -hmm. mom tried to come in. (laughs) Uh, Most Christmases, Mm -hmm. she was there. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, uh, there was a lot of anticipation. Mm -hmm. And uh, your parents went overboard on the holidays. (laughs) It's like topping them was very difficult. But we had the advantage of living with you, so we kind of knew what your interests were and what you might especially like. Yeah, this was the first one I was with you guys. We flipped to a photo of me, nine years old with my entire family of stuffed bears. Now, the the bears. The bears. Oh, God, Let's the infamous the bears. bears. <laughs> now, which was the one that okay. your mom gave you? She got you this bear so that you would have something to hug and love when she wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So it was really important to her. Mm -hmm. And then you loved bears. So different occasions, uh, we would buy you these other bears. And you got the camera at Christmas time, and you didn't know what you could take pictures of. (laughs) So it was suggested to you that maybe you could pose your bears <laughs> and take pictures of your bears. Yeah. 
So that's what all this was about. Absolutely. This is my, this is uh, Bears at a cocktail party. You see little shot glasses. <laughs> These are Bears playing football. Uh, here's, bears just hanging out bears together. Just hanging out. <laughs> you know, yeah. And this is Adam. This is, this was Buster. I don't, ah, I don't remember this one together. I was very sad about <laughs> you, Bears. I re- didn't I? Uh, what get happened sick? was, yeah, and yeah. it was, it was like you were always a good eater. So one night I'd made chili, mm. and you ate a big bowl of chili, <laughs> and then you wanted more. Mm-hmm. And I was raised, you finish. I said, if you want more, you have to finish it. Mm-hmm. And you said that you you didn't want to finish it. You were full, and you didn't feel well, mm-hmm. and. That night you got sick. Yeah. And you I remember that. I mean, you it was projectile all over everything. Yeah. And your uncle Carvel just picked up the um, bedspread with all it was all over all the bears. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, we can try to wash them." He said, "No, we're just going to throw them away. We'll get more bears." <laughs> so, your uncle Carvel threw away the bears. You talked to your mother. You were upset about your bears. You told them Aunt B, told her Aunt B threw the bears away. Aww. And your mother thought I was being vindictive because she got the bear. Because there was kind of a, your mom still wanted to call all the shots even though she couldn't be here. Mm. I felt really guilty later. Uh. I, made, I don't think I ever made you finish it again. <laughs> we keep paging through the scrapbook. And I realized I've never actually talked with her about what it felt like when she sent it to me. The story of how I got this really resonates for me, which is that when I was in college, I hadn't talked to you in a little while. I was off in New York, and one day I decided to write you a letter. And I remember, I remember being really nervous writing the letter because I didn't want there to be any typos because you were always <laughs> you always checked my homework for dotted I's and cross T's. And but I wrote this letter. Oh, okay. So you sent, you type yes. me a letter. Sorry, I'm going to tell you this letter. And uh, in this letter, I think I just remember saying, I, we haven't talked in a while. And to be honest, I don't quite know how to process even our time together. Mm. You're sort of like my mother, but you weren't my mother. But there was this time and we haven't talked. And what do I do? And I don't even know what I'm asking. Here's my letter. Mm. And then I didn't hear from you. <laughs> and at the time, I thought you had so many other things going on in your life that in some ways you were emotionally distant. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe this is too much for her, and maybe she's not going to respond, or she doesn't know how to respond, or whatever. And then I didn't hear from you for a while. I don't remember ever getting that letter. Did I ever tell you I got it? No. Maybe you didn't get I the letter? I didn't get the letter. I don't think I ever got it. One thing about me, anytime somebody wrote me a letter, I answered it. Almost. Yeah. 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 That's really odd. Huh. She didn't get the letter. She did not get the letter. She didn't even get the letter. This story, this whole story that I've had in my head for like 20 years had been based on this idea that she had heard my intense pleas for reconnection and she simply couldn't bring herself to address them directly. That the most she could make of this gesture was this scrapbook. That she couldn't even talk about it. She just made me this thing. But then it turns out she didn't even get the letter. She just decided on her own that she needed to connect with me. And she took all these photos and she put them together and she sent them to me at the same moment that I was reaching out to her. That's what really happened. 
that's what the past really was. Some broken people doing their best, misunderstanding each other. Um, this is the single worst school picture ever taken of anyone. I mean, it's t- that, that's why we have so many, because I, I, I like didn't want us to give them to anyone. There was, it's the worst you picture. You take that page out. <laughs> well, now, you know, now it's an archive, but it's really... I think I'll leave that page in there. I looked awkward as hell in eighth grade. I mean, it's a fact. My features were mismatched in size. My hair was shaped like I had just spent a week wearing Darth Vader's helmet. And I was ashamed of who I was. I was embarrassed and corny and sad and angry and lonely and timid and afraid. But I was also beautiful. And I was loved, you know, by my mom and my Aunt B and my uncle. I mean, I was loved imperfectly, but loved nonetheless. I love my Aunt B. It's that simple. I love her now that I'm an adult and I'm no longer afraid of her. It's not feeling love that we struggle with. That part's easy. It's doing love. We struggle with doing love. We struggle with caring, with forgiving, with recognizing the humanity in, holding to high standards, expecting good things from, making good things for. Before I went to see my aunt, Eva Patterson asked me what I was afraid of. And, you know, I still don't really know. But maybe I was just afraid that I wouldn't know what to do with her how to love her, how to even, like, show up. And what if I did it wrong? It's a gamble, you know? But then everything in life is a gamble because we never know exactly what's right, what's enough. It's all just guesswork, so we have to just make our decision and live with it. But the one thing I do know is that no matter what, I'm going to continue to try and help people. And to find out from people how I can help them. Maybe it's never talk to them again. Maybe it's stay in touch more frequently. Maybe it's to help with money or resources if I can. But whatever it is, it's to do love. And maybe helping people in these little ways is not enough. But it's all there is. So I guess I went to meet my Aunt B not to see what she could do for me but what I could do for her. What kind of relationship does she want? And if me being present in her life is helpful to her, then I guess that's what I'm going to try and do. So now what? Can we all go forward together in our families, as a country, Next week, I talk to Alexis Frank, a 27-year-old biracial army veteran and mother who's been doing a lot of what we've been talking about this season. And that'll be our season finale. So what have I learned? What have you learned? Think about it and come back next week. Don't, 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 don't. 
your phone calls keep coming, and we love hearing them. I feel invisible to America as a Black woman, and I would like to read to you a poem that I wrote for myself to let myself know that I hear me and that I see myself. I am the daughter of Haitian immigrants, the descendants of Haitian slaves that fought in a revolution for freedom. In my blood runs the descendant of a great Haitian general that fought, directed, and helped lead his brothers and sisters towards their self-worth of freedom. In my veins runs the blood of women that bore 13 and 12 brave souls that journeyed into the Americas to provide me with this opportunity to live, breathe, and speak and follow my dreams. I am my mother's daughter who taught me to fight for my rights, to stand proud against injustice, who looked me in the eye every day and told me that I was strong and beautiful and black. You can always reach us at 949-522-5587. That's 949-522-5587. Leave a voicemail. You don't have to use your name if you don't want to. And you can always find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Closer Show. I love hearing your messages so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Closer Than They Appear from Chetty Studios. You can always find links to episodes and full transcripts on our website, closerthantheyappear.fm. This episode was field produced by Lacey Roberts. Our senior producer is Casey Miner and our editor is Leela Day. Graylin Brashear and Paulana Lamonier run our social media and our associate producer is Meredith Hodnott. Our show is engineered by Mark Bain with mixing and sound design by Ian Koss. Music is by Antique Naked Soul. You can hear more from them at antique-music.com. We've got a great video of them on our Facebook watch page. They're amazing to see perform. Every sound you hear from them is totally acapella. They're fantastic, and I really want you to check it out. Megan Jones runs our podcast operations, and Jessica Wang is our senior video producer. Jetty's executive producer is Julie Kane, and the general manager is Kazar Kampwala. Thanks for listening. Jenny.